Welcome to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton, and joining me today is Carl Eric Fisher. Carl Fisher is an addiction physician and bioethicist. He is an assistant professor of clinical psychiatry at Columbia University, where he works in the division of law, ethics, and psychiatry. He also maintains a private psychiatry practice focusing on complementary and integrative approaches to treating addiction. His writing has appeared in Nautilus, Slate, and Scientific American Mind, among other outlets. He's also recently written a book called The Urge, Our History of Addiction. And that's primarily what we're going to talk about today. It's a very interesting conversation where we talk a little bit about the actual history of addiction uh, within our human species from a very broad sense, and then from an American or sort of North American Western sense within the last 500 years. And we take a few different approaches to today's conversation, which I found quite fascinating. Uh, We talk a little bit about not only the history of addiction, we talk about the history of treatment, we talk about the perspectives that we have adopted uh, all the way from Aristotle to present day moments. So it's a, a bit of an interesting conversation about what addiction is, how, you know how it comes about, how we have, as human beings have uh, tried to relate to addiction and, and people that have addictions. So I hope that you enjoy this conversation, whether you know someone that has battled addiction or you yourself have gone through that. Uh, this is just a really, in my opinion, generative conversation about everything addiction related. So without any further delay, I hope that you enjoy this conversation and please welcome Carl Eric Fisher. All right, my friend, how are you doing today? It's good to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, likewise. What time? What time is it done? I didn't ask that. You're you are you're gallivanting. Should I give away your location? I don't mean to give no, away. No, it's fine. Your it's not a secret. Maybe he doesn't want people to know where he is. Like top I'm, I'm calling in from an undisclosed location. Uh, <laughs> it's Lisbon, Portugal, and uh, it's five hours ahead of the East Coast. So I'm. Uh, it's okay. two o'clock here. Beautiful. Okay, so I said good morning, <laughs> and you're like in the afternoon. You're like I've been up a long time, man. Yeah. Awesome, Carl. Well, thank you so much for for joining me. I think this is a very interesting topic for a number of reasons. But let's let's just begin how I always begin, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life. Great. That, I mean, that's an easy one because that's really the motive force for the book. It's what got me onto the topic in the first place. Uh, I was fresh out of medical school and really high achieving in a top psychiatry residency program, doing a lot of research and really felt like I was on top of the world. And a lot of that was just my own sort of frantic activity, kind of medicating the insecurity and the need for external validation that I'd had for a really long time. I was really um, intertwined with the more concrete addiction I had. I was struggling with alcohol. I was struggling with Adderall. A little later, I got into cocaine. But all of that was connected with um, that other stuff I was talking about, like my values weren't aligned. I was driving myself into the ground, really burning out. And... um, In my case, it brought me to a psychiatric hospital. I got so bad on alcohol and Adderall that I uh, I had a manic episode where I totally broke with reality. I got psychotic. The NYPD had to break down my door in the West Village of Manhattan, and then I was admitted to a psychiatric ward. And then because I'm a doctor, I got the opportunity to get treatment in this sort of specialized, supervised program. And that's a long story. We can get into it if we get there. But the real point 
is that uh, it forced me to take a really close look at all of the ways I was trying to cover up or tell a story about myself or manage my own persona even to myself uh, and face up to addiction and really try to make sense of what had happened to me. How do I make sense of how that was so mystifying and uh, overlooked even within myself? You mentioned, uh, you said something along the lines of manage my own persona. And I'm I'm hoping that maybe you can just elaborate on that because I feel like there's a connection there to addiction and, and how we can kind of, you know, find ourselves in those types of situations. Uh, so can you just give a little bit more context for that? Because I think when people think about traditional addiction, they think about, you know, trauma, right? That's kind of the first thing that comes to mind. Like something happened to that person and they haven't dealt with it or they've tried to deal with it and it quote unquote hasn't worked and then uh, you know, it's led them to addiction. But that's not always the case, as many of us know. And so I'm hoping that you can just elaborate on that a bit. Yeah, sure. And you touch on causes. And I think that's a really interesting point because you know, people want causes. That's one thing I found in the history too. Whenever somebody has a drug problem or whenever a society has a drug epidemic, we want to know what the answer is. And, mm. you know, in my case, I don't know what caused my addiction. Uh, but it was useful to look at what the different factors were. Um, I wasn't ever traumatized in the uh, traditional sense of like capital T trauma, sexual abuse or physical abuse or severe deprivation. I had lowercase t trauma in the broader sense of having two alcoholic parents and having the problems that come along with that. Uh, but there's also other stuff that goes into addiction. There are many other causes and conditions that intersect. And um, you started off by asking about my persona. I think part of that was the the story I told about myself. I needed to feel like I was on top of the world or like doing well or doing okay because uh, it was really important to me to not have a problem with addiction. It was really important to me to not be vulnerable mm -hmm. and to basically construct a story about myself that I was in charge, that I was in control, that I could handle whatever suffering I was facing. Another part of that is I was, I considered myself a really spiritual guy and got very, very deep into Zen practice shortly after college, brought that into medical school, brought that into residency. I lost a good portion of that in the process of going deeper into addiction. Uh, but I also had this idea that, you know, this is like I've been taken over by some addiction. It's that I, I have, I'm working with my suffering and I'm working with my pain and maybe I can meditate this away. And it was a very solitary endeavor. So, you know, the upshot is all those, all those stories I was telling about myself really, really got in the way. And that, that interacted with the, the history part too, because I found it's not just about like people getting taken over by substances that throughout history, people's ideas about addiction are, their ideas themselves about addiction are a really important part of developing addiction and uh, working with our own suffering. Just one, maybe one last question here, because I'm curious on this. What was it like for you to go on the road to recovery? And we'll talk more about recovery, because I'm, I'm actually really very curious about the historical components of recovery and what we've tried to do to support people throughout time. But yeah. but for you, as you you know came out of that out of that experience, having the psychotic break and dealing with addiction. I'm curious to get your perspective on how you began to recover from that. You mentioned this treatment program. Um, did it cover both of those things? Was there, was there different things that you had to sort of tackle or address uh, for the addiction and, and for the, the other component? Um, yeah, let's just see what happens there. Yeah, taking a step back from that, 
you you could think about recovery from addiction as medical treatment, and a lot of people get help from outpatient programs, inpatient rehabs, or just individual psychotherapy. And also, a lot of people go to mutual help programs. The main ones are twelve step programs, things like AA. But there's also a huge diversity of other mutual help programs, all with different angles, and many of which are not opposed to AA or other twelve step programs. It's just a different sort of take on similar themes. For me, though, I I got a lot out of the medical part of things, and I got a lot out of the mutual help part. And at the same time, our treatment programs today are sort of one size fits all. And the rehab that I was more or less mandated to go to basically presented 12-step as the only way, which I think is harmful and is actually in direct contradiction with a lot of stuff that the AA founders wrote about. And it was amazing to me that I went to Columbia Med School. I went to the specialized program. I had the, the, the tremendous privilege of getting all this support as a physician. And still, it wasn't really clear to me how... Uh, how many different pathways there were to recovery, how many different varieties there were out there. Like 12-step programs and participation in them was life-saving for me. I got a lot out of that. But then eventually what it led back to was what is now my primary home for recovery, which is Buddhist recovery. And there are all these different Buddhist recovery programs and networks uh, that, again, are not opposed to 12-step in any way, but just a sort of different angle. Because that's my spiritual home, too. That's my that's my practice. That's That's how I make sense of myself as a spiritual person. And so it's nice to have a sort of recovery framework built around that. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I, I appreciate that. Well, let's let's shift gears and talk about the urge and the the sort of history of addiction. Cause this is I mean, this is this is for the most part why why you're here and the, you know about the the book that you wrote. So let's just start in a broad sense. Because I actually, I'll admit, I don't really know anything about the history of addiction, and so I would love for you know, I'll be the I'll be the the, the student in this interaction, but I would love for you to just begin with what have we historically done? How have we viewed addiction? How have we maybe miscategorized it or mislabeled it throughout time? And I'll just let you sort of begin where wherever you want in in, in history. And just maybe sort of give us some examples of how we've approached addiction. Yeah. So I'll start where I started off in the book, which is I was really curious about people outside of medicine who could help us understand addiction. And so I went back as far as I could go, looking for the ways people have tried to understand similar concepts. And way before we had a modern idea of addiction, there were people from different traditions and different philosophies who were struggling to make sense of self-control. So Aristotle was really deeply preoccupied with self-control and a lot of writings on the ways that self-control goes wrong or uh, how people might be misled within themselves. And for him, it was a life or death endeavor. Uh, for, for the ancient Greeks, philosophy was about how to live a quality life. It wasn't about some sort of philosophical game. It was about virtue ethics. It was about uh, living life in accordance with your values. And that's part of where I went wrong as well, which is not to say that addiction is a moral failing in any way. It's just to say that sometimes it impacts morality and the way we do harm in our communities. So I, you know, I looked at Aristotle, I looked at the Buddha, St. Augustine, people across different traditions, and all that stuff was useful because before we had some sort of narrow medical idea of addiction with so many different perspectives, just the different varieties of self-control problems in between choice and compulsion. 
Today, the shorthand, I think, gets a little oversimplified. Today, especially in medicine, there's this tendency to kind of divide things up all or nothing, choice or compulsion. Either you're totally free or you're completely taken over by a drug and hijacked as if you have no agency and no self-control whatsoever. And I don't think most people have that experience. Certainly not my experience. It's not the experience of most of my patients. Whether I was early stage drug and alcohol problems or later stage when it got really bad, there's still an element of choice. There was still a part of me that was planning and hiding and making these amazing sort of strategic judgments to try to continue my use, even despite the tremendous costs. So all those ancient thinkers, I think, really did a lot to illustrate that area between uh, choice and compulsion. The big theme that goes throughout the book that uh, we tend to get attracted to simple causes, but then scratch below the surface, and there's some really useful nuance there. And have you found, because I know you talk about different cultures, and you give some interesting examples of like how the Greeks dealt with it, and you know what it looked like in in China, and you know what it looked like in in India, and just different stories. And so I'm hoping that maybe you can talk a little bit about from what you found. How have we culturally throughout history tried to approach addiction, and what's what's been some of the views, and maybe what's been the the most surprising thing? Because yeah, I'll I'll pause there before I give you more questions. <laughs> yeah, sure. One of the big surprises was that we've had drug epidemics for 500 years. That we're in the middle of a historic opioid overdose crisis. The level of death is astounding. I mean, it's gone up by tremendous amounts, even within COVID. So now 100,000 people are dying per year. And that's, not, that's only one slice of the addiction problem because people also die from tobacco and alcohol too. And we've, we've tended as different societies to respond to those addiction epidemics in a variety of different ways. And the thing I found really interesting about those responses, whether it was the European response to tobacco when it first landed in like 1500s, 1600s, or the first American opioid epidemic, which happened around the time of the Civil War, or the stimulant epidemic we had in, say, like the 1920s, is like in the social responses to those epidemics, we see how people make sense of addiction. That also reflects the individual idea of how people understand drug problems and also how we go wrong with drug problems. And there's a lot we could say about that, but the the bottom line is we tend to swing between these extremes. That sometimes it's a prohibitionist crackdown. I think it goes along with what we were saying earlier, that there's also a tendency for this sort of overwhelming and really harsh self-discipline, like I'm going to cut it out in a way that's not really kind and compassionate toward myself. Or, Or we can swing toward an answer that is sometimes too focused on mutual help and neglecting the other sorts of things that uh, are necessary, like medical treatment or like science or like prohibitionism. So, uh, you know, I'm not in favor of like total crackdowns. A, a very crude war on drugs has never really worked, but we do need some common sense regulation, as we've seen in, say, like the runaway tobacco companies or the runaway opioid manufacturers in the 1990s. But it, a lot of it is finding that golden mean is uh, finding the, the wise middle ground where there's like the right dose of discipline, but also tempered with compassion and wisdom and community and all the rest. Hmm. So in some of the ancient cultures, are you saying that we have kind of historically dealt with addiction in roughly the same way? Like I know in the book you talk about, you know, the Greeks had a word, uh, I think it was philopides. I don't, I'm, yeah. I'm probably saying it completely wrong, but it was like yeah. uh, love of drinking sessions. And then in, in Tengsen, 
uh, described a pact that he made with the gods to stop drinking, only to only to later get drunk at a banquet. And so, like, it's kind of shown up throughout our history, you know. Yeah. So I would just love for you to speak a little bit to that of what you've seen of how we've been trying to sort of solve this. Um, maybe I don't know if problem is the right word, but how we've been trying to relate to addiction throughout history, throughout the writing. Yeah, I like that revision, how to relate to addiction, because in a way it was a bit more flexible in the past Hmm. in several areas. Uh, It's not that we've always responded in the same way, but I do think that we've gone through different cycles and we have to be aware of those cycles if we want to step back and have a fuller picture of the situation. Uh, For example, about 500 years ago, when the word addiction first entered the English language, it was actually a really important concept for early Protestants who were really concerned about discipline, the will, self-control, and how it related to, for them, freedom and salvation. So for them, addiction was not about a condition that happens to you. It wasn't like a status that came over you. It was an action. They recognized that uh, people could addict themselves to something. And it wasn't negative only. It was also positive. So you could addict yourself to bad things like the wrong sort of prayer, even necromancy or black magic. But you could also, you could addict yourself to positive pursuits like study or uh, self-development in other ways. And I, I really like that conception. And in a way that mirrors other ways people have understood this problem of addiction throughout time. And it's really only recently that it's gotten narrowed to a very small slice of human behavior. It's meant to mean the farthest extremes of a particular type of problem and just substances and not, not this sort of broader conception of all the other ways we might we might like devote ourselves to a thing and then in the process lose our freedom. It's like willfully giving up your will. I mean, you use the word devote there and I think it's interesting because in some ways there is a devotionary aspect to addiction. You know, that there's... Like David Foster Wallace talks about how everybody worships something, right? Whether they admit to it or not. It's like we are worshiping creatures in some capacity. And it would seem as though there is an element of devotion that comes into addiction. I'm, I'm curious if you agree with that and if that has sort of shown up, uh, you know, within your, within your research. Absolutely. You know, the word devotion came to my mind because I was thinking about a book by this great English scholar, Rebecca Lemon, who wrote a book. Addiction and devotion in early modern England. Early modern meaning like 1500 to 1700 roughly. And that's the way it was understood. It was a strong devotion. It was a particular type of strong devotion that impinged on people's voluntary behavior. It was a voluntary behavior that you did that then took away your voluntariness and impaired your own freedom. Hmm. Uh, But, you know, absolutely. It's not, I think we lose a lot if we think of addiction as something that just happens to us. Because throughout time, people have recognized that addiction is really universal. The concept underlying it are are things that everyone shares. That's my experience with working with patients. The same self-control problems that people have in severe cases of addiction are essentially the same as people who struggle with work or with sex or with money or with status or external validation or gambling or whatever. It's a it's a severe matter of degree, but it's not a difference in kind. It's not like there's a totally different kind of mode of existence. That's my view at least. Hmm. Interesting. And so you you mentioned that the word addiction really only came 
into our usage like 500 years ago. So when you look back before that, how did people label, how did people identify addiction? Like what were some of the cultural terms? And I think the other piece is how were people who were viewed or perceived to be, I'll just use the word addicts because that's what we use, how were they treated socially? Because I think uh, I'd like to better understand, like, you know, how did people a thousand, two thousand years ago identify these people? How did they treat them? And, and have we shifted at all? <laughs> Although I'm sure that it ebbs and flows throughout time. But yeah, let's let's explore that a little bit. Yeah, it's a really important question because what I call addiction and what you call addiction might not even be the same as what somebody called it addiction a hundred years ago hmm. or two hundred years ago, let alone what people called addiction before addiction had a name. And, and what I mean by that is uh, I do think there's something real there. I, I got tremendous identification when I saw these stories like from 1000 BC, somebody with gambling addiction in the Hindu Rig Veda, or uh, like you mentioned, the, the Chinese poet uh, a couple thousand years later who struggled with drinking and then couldn't stop. So I think there's a there there. I think I really think, and you know, maybe that sounds stupid to some people because anybody who struggled with addiction in their life uh, has a real sense that this is something urgent and life-threatening and important. But sometimes when people talk about these concepts, it's almost as if, you know, it's an idea or it's a social construct or it's not really real. Uh, So I feel it's important to say that. Uh, And at the same time, what we think about addiction is so strongly influenced by our cultural and social background, these like legacies of our ancestors, whether it's just our parents or family of origin or whether it goes back deeper and deeper. And that's part of what I was trying to get at in the book is what is that cultural and historical baggage that we carry around with us regarding self-control? How does it help us? How does it hurt us? And um, so you were asking about how people make sense of addiction before addiction had a name. I like Aristotle. We were talking about him before, so I guess my mind is going there. But uh, Aristotle had this one particular way of describing self-control problems that uh, I think is akrasia. You talk, you know, Greek pronunciation. It's all Greek to me. I've heard philosophers say it in different ways, but akrasia was something really special for him. It, it's often translated as weakness of the will, or another translation is incontinence, which I think is a really nice, evocative statement, where. Uh, you do something that you don't want to do, even knowing that it's not the best option for you. So it's not like it's not like doing something and then regretting it later. It means like with your eyes wide open, with the full knowledge in the moment that uh, this is not the right path, that it's harming you, you still go through and do it. And uh, you know, one example is I might make the resolution, and many times I did make the resolution when I was drinking. Tonight's the night. I'm not going to drink tonight. I really need to start cutting down. I know I can get a handle on this. Maybe I can prove to myself that I can I can walk it back on my own. And that intention is very clear in the morning, in midday, in the afternoon when I'm coming home from work. And then almost as if I'm watching myself do it when I get lonely or when I get stressed or when I just have a craving, I, I watch myself walking out the door down to the corner store buy the drink, and even knowing and saying to myself, this is not really what I want to be doing and it's not going to wind up harming me, I still drink the drink. And I, I think people have that experience with with food and with money and with all the other stuff that we talked about before. Um, but it's a really beautiful model because it includes choice. It doesn't mean that addiction is a choice. And it doesn't mean that people are doing a bad thing by choice. It just means that there's like some way that choice 
gets askew. The choice gets disordered. Uh, and it's not that all or nothing binary we were talking about before. You know, I think what's interesting, I think what I hear you saying is is that self-control and our perception of self-control has been really at the the sort of center of this exploration around addiction for thousands of years, right? Whether it's Aristotle, you know, whether it's in China, whether it's in India, whether, you know, it's in modern day North America. Is it about how we relate to self-control? Is it about our perceptions of how much we should have control over ourselves? You know, or or is part of it about how we shame ourselves for not having control or like, you know, maybe fetishizing in a way. I don't know if that's the right word, but I'm going to use it. Fetishizing the being out of control, you know, because I think about my own history with addictive behaviors and there was almost something unspeakably alluring about not having control, you know, I think there were, that was just part of the cycle. Later on, I would shame myself for not having control over what I wanted in that moment. But there was something almost appealing about like, oh, I, I can't control this, this part of me. Or I can't control this behavior. And so I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts on all that. Yeah, Connor, I really identify with that. I, I personally really identify with what you're saying, where I, I had this sense that I was almost revolting against my own harsh inner disciplinarian. And mm. I was so tight and so focused on getting ahead or mastering myself that it was suffocating. And then sometimes I had to revolt against that self-control by finding some sense of release or connection or just a more like easygoing friendliness in social situations. That was definitely a part of my whole addictive pattern for sure. And I think it's good to identify that uh, our ideas about self-control can sometimes be really harmful and really influence the way that we think about addiction. It's a big part of the American story, actually. Mm. A lot of my book takes place in North America. That's partly because it's a book for me trying to make sense of what happened to me and my family. And so I look to my own legacy, but it's also because addiction has a particularly rich history in the United States. And United States doctors and thinkers were in many ways the originators of some of the key addiction concepts. And there's some thought, that there's some speculation, this might be an unsolvable historical riddle, because it's about sociology hundreds of years ago. But there's some thought that the addiction is a particularly modern American phenomenon, hmm. where the United States is so bound up in these ideas about individualism and self-reliance and discipline, um, going all the way back to the colonial times when like salvation, you could prove that you were worthy through your own like self-discipline and good works. And then of course, this notion of like a self-made man proving yourself without assistance, this sort of like cowboy ideal. And if people are really invested in that notion, they might be more vulnerable to addiction. They might be more vulnerable to this uh, this sort of like isolation and the 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 pendular swing between too harsh discipline and then just like the 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 urgent searching for release and escape from all of that for sure hmm. yeah i mean it, it's interesting because i think about media i've consumed from other cultures like i'm a big i love japanese culture and so i've kind of gone down the rabbit hole in a lot of like those old samurai movies and um you know studying zen and and all those different components. And it, it does seem as though 
the individuals who have had some form of addiction, or at least the portrayal of the people that have had some form of addiction, are maybe few and far between as we go back, you know, further further back. But it almost always is related to, from my, from my perspective, somebody that has lost a sense of, of meaning within their lives, somebody that has lost a sense of communal belonging, and somebody that has maybe disconnected from uh, a spiritual undercurrent within their life that they had before, you know? So like, you know, this, this sort of classic samurai losing his master and sort of losing purpose and function and, you know, losing his way and then turning to the bottle and that becomes the new master and et cetera, and then having to overcome that. But that does seem to be something that has played out through, throughout history I'm curious if I'm curious to just circle back on this notion of how we have treated people uh, with addiction and if there's any sort of ties between how we have, you know, because we we have an interesting relationship with our modern culture with people that have addiction. And there's many different camps, I think, to how people treat them, right? There's ostracization, there's sort of outcasts. It's like, well, they should just get it together. There's, uh, you know, wanting to sort of swing in and save them and, and be the hero in that person's story. You know, there's many different avenues that people try and take within our modern culture. And I'm curious if there's any sort of historical precedence in that, like if that's something that we've tried to do, or if that's sort of a new thing that we're creating all this infrastructure around trying to support people that, that are struggling with addiction. It's a relatively newer innovation in historical time, at least, mm-hmm. that we divide up people according to good drugs and bad drugs. Mm. Uh, because people use drugs for reasons. As long as we've had human societies, we've sought out ways of using drugs. But a lot of our current drug policy and our stigmatized views about drugs come out of these massive drug panics, at least since the 19th century when people got freaked out about Chinese immigrants and opium. Mm. And so there's a big scare about that. People got freaked out after the Civil War about uh, black people and supposed associations with violence, with cocaine use, even though everybody was using cocaine at that time. You know, um, white mine workers in West Virginia were using cocaine too, but it was the, the black dangerousness myth that really kicked up fears about cocaine. And then even among my own ancestors, European ancestors who came to the Northeast, the the poor urban underclass sparked a huge sort of moral panic in and of themselves. This is the origin of sort of like the Skid Row archetype of like the dangerous seedy underworld. And um, those fears got attached to heroin, which is a new drug around that time. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a really strong and concerted effort to divide people up by good drugs and bad drugs in American society, especially we seriously over-invested in the notion that certain drugs are dangerous invaders, they have to be defeated at all costs, they're definitely negative, and they're going to take you over like some sort of possessing, invading force. And that's really a dangerous notion because it comes back to bite us all. It, re- it really rebounds to, to harm everyone because while we're villainizing certain drugs, which in itself doesn't do anything to help, uh, it can even be a weapon for oppressing other people. Um, it also blinds us to the supposedly good drugs 
And that's happened over and over and over again. I mentioned just briefly that there was a, a stimulant epidemic uh, around the time they were invented. I mean, this uh, synthetic stimulants like methamphetamine came about in the 20s, 30s, 40s. And because they, they work in a different way and they seem different than, say, opiates and cocaine, the pharmaceutical companies were able to sell these narratives saying these things aren't really addictive because real addiction is this thing over there that's associated with Chinese and black people. And that caused tremendous harm across the whole spectrum to the, you know, to the privileged, to the, um, to the marginalized. So, you know, I, I, drugs and drug policy can be really polarizing. But the, the one important message about that is that drug, you know, drug use is not necessarily problematic for everyone. I think we've come to associate uh, certain drugs with sort of like automatic, instantaneous addiction, and it just doesn't work that way. It's interesting to hear you hear you say that and sort of reflect on how we within Western culture, like just in the notion of the war on drugs is such an ass backwards <laughs> way of dealing with it. Like I, I can't even, you know, sometimes I have a hard time grappling with the understanding of how we got there culturally and how people bought into this notion that you need to go to war on uh, an actual drug. And yet... You know, we have allowed companies and corporations to really disperse a lot of these highly addictive drugs quite easily. You know, I think there's a great uh, series called Dope Sick. We haven't we haven't started watching it, but it's on HBO, and it's all about the Sackler family and you know uh, opioids and the distribution and what's what's sort of taken place to get opioids in, into the public hands and just some of the. I mean, criminal nature of it is is quite fascinating to me. Okay, well, let's maybe let's talk a little bit about treatment and how that's evolved over time. I'm I'm curious um, as we have been talking about this to get a sense of how have we traditionally supported, helped, treated people that have struggled with addiction, and how has that evolved over time to where we are today. Yeah, there are a lot of ways that people have treated addiction in a medical context. And I also want to say that for a long time in history, people have recognized that as much as medic medicine can help, there's a role for something more, for a sort of grassroots mutual help connection and community building. And often, you know, because we're on man talks, you know, often a particularly male thing, uh, it goes back to Indigenous cultures like the Seneca in New York State, when they were being devastated by alcohol in the 18th century around the time of the Revolutionary War, banded together and formed these talking circles that look remarkably similar to 12-step groups today. Hmm. I found that really fascinating because there's no connection. I really wanted there to be a connection, actually. It would have been so cool if I could have been <laughs> the person who like traces some lineage and somehow it got transmitted from here to there and elsewhere. Uh, but in a way, it's almost more interesting that there's not a lineage because what it means is that these types of, you know, it's not therapeutic because it's not medicine, but it is therapeutic because it's about healing. Mm. The, these types of groups arose at different points independently in human history. And there's also this whole tradition of like men's groups, which I'm sure you talk about all the time in your podcast. So we probably don't have to get into it. But, you know, there's this other group in the 1840s called the Washingtonians. And that was during another big American problem with alcohol, but it was also during this massive economic depression where a lot of people were alienated and kind of hopeless and they felt like the economy couldn't provide for them and they couldn't get work and they couldn't find meaning and purpose in work. And 
uh, it seemed like society was just like really unfulfilling. And so they formed their own way of banding together to support each other and to find some of that meaning and purpose through service and through lifting each other up. Uh, and I think that's a really important piece because medicine, medicine is really, really important. It can absolutely save lives. And there are a lot of ways that we're falling short today. We could be providing much better treatment for addictions. Uh, and even if people like me, even if all the psychiatrists in the world got all of our policy wish lists and enacted all of like the funding and the expansions and all the rest, you know, we would still need more than medicine. We'd still need that sort of consciousness changing and connection through community. But so like back to your question, people have also sought ways of connecting on an individual level. There are analogs to psychotherapy and sort of problem solving habit change going back to like the Napoleonic Wars in the early 19th century. And then there are also bad things. There are ways that their treatment system, because the American medical establishment largely abandoned the treatment of addiction in the earlier part of the 20th century, these other forces had to step in and try to fill the vacuum. And sometimes without any sort of ill intent... Uh, people wound up producing these sometimes harmful treatment systems. And we're still kind of living with the legacy of that today. And we have a lot to correct for. And the medical profession is doing a lot better in terms of stepping up and providing treatment. And there are a huge range of options. But because of that, uh, I think sometimes people get misguided and they feel like there's a a narrow one-size-fits-all and you know, you ask any random person on the street, like, what do you do if somebody has a severe problem with substances? What do you do if somebody has an addiction? It's not always clear. It's not always clear, like, where you go, what do you do? Mm. Yeah, it does seem like we have taken some interesting avenues to try and treat addiction. Like, I was reading this, uh, I'm reading this book currently, but oh, you know, a while back, I remember reading a part of it. It's called The Invisible Rainbow, <clears throat> A History of Electricity and Life, mm. which sounds wildly boring on paper at least it to me it doesn't sound super exciting uh but it's riveting in some ways and he the the author arthur i can't remember how to say his last name but uh talks quite a bit about how we've used these sort of interesting medical treatments over time like you know bloodletting you know using leeches he goes into great detail about how we've used electricity as a means of intoxicant, as a means of treatment, you know, that we actually try to use mild forms of electrocution to support people who uh, had some form of uh, drinking problem or, you know, that, that couldn't stop gambling. And so they would go and see a doctor or a scientist in, in some capacity and, and they would get electrocuted, you know? And so it's so interesting to see the different measures that we have taken sort of feeling around in the dark to solve not just addiction, but just really any of our, our health issues, uh, our psychological challenges. And so I guess that brings me to, to today, which, you know, you mentioned that we, that we've, had some ineffective means to try and address addiction. And I'm, I'm curious to get your sense of, you know, as somebody that's sort of steeped in this field, what have you seen to be effective? And you've kind of broken it down into there are some maybe medical components that go into it, and there are certainly some communal aspects that go into it. And are there things that, that we can, with a certain amount of certainty, say are not very effective? when it comes to to treating addiction. Definitely. Yeah, and as long as people have tried to treat addiction, there've been sort of miracle cures and wacky claims 
but they appear wacky in retrospect. But when somebody is really desperate mm-hmm. and they're looking for help, maybe it makes sense. And even today, people wind up in these very extreme situations. And I, you know, the, the number one thing that comes to my mind when you ask about what's ineffective is harsh confrontation. And I think that's a legacy of some of the stigmatized attitudes we've had about addiction where even today, and especially in the criminal legal system, like people wind up in these court mandated programs where they're doing pushups in the snow and getting their head shaved or they, they violate a rule and then they have to wear a diaper all day with a sign around their neck saying I'm a baby. Mm. And, um, you know, I shouldn't have to say this, but I do. Uh, we have studies saying that harsh confrontation doesn't work. There might be ways that like a softer version of confrontation in the gentle sense of like facing something, confronting something might be a useful thing to do. Uh, But that sort of like harsh breaking down, that tough love just does not work. Um, Can I jump in there? Because I'm I'm curious when you say harsh confrontation, uh, I just want to clarify like where does intervention fit in for you then? Because I think some, you know, I think there was a TV show for a long time that was like intervention based. And sometimes I never really watched it. I, I saw clips here and there and, and sometimes it would look quite harsh. Yeah. Uh, so I'm curious to get your perspective on where intervention fits into that. Exactly. That's where I was going to go next. It's, um, it's related, but you know, you met one interventionist, you met one interventionist. It's a relatively newer phenomenon. It's not a super duper regulated industry. Yeah. And there may be times And this is backed up by more recent research. There may be times that it is necessary for someone who has a friend or a family member or a loved one with addiction to say, I can't support this anymore. Mm. And I'm going to withdraw and allow you to experience the natural consequences of your actions. And it's very good to have professional help if you do that because you need the sort of wisdom and discernment to know what is a healthy boundary and what is actually in the service of the other person rather than what is punishing or what might have like a little undercurrent of retribution or or something like that. Um, so, you know, I, I've worked with interventionists. I think there are some very good ones out there. There's a whole variety of intervention styles. Uh, but I think there's a sort of caricature of intervention that people should look out for which is the notion that you should cut people off entirely because any help whatsoever is enabling and even you should accelerate their fall toward rock bottom because this is not true. We have good evidence to show you actually help people in their road toward recovery if you provide a ho- appropriate and boundaried help along the way. It's just very hard to do. It's easy for me to say that. I, I know personally it's hard to do. My own parents had addictions. Uh, I had to work with my mother and try to support my mother as she was dying of cancer and she was still drinking in a way that, you know, undercut her own chemo. So it's, I know it's, it's really hard to be thoughtful and set those boundaries. In my case, I really needed therapy and wise counsel from other like friends and professionals in my life. But it's, you know, that's life. It's hard. There are no easy answers. It's not all or nothing. Yeah, I mean, uh, I I appreciate you sharing that because I think that'll I think that resonates with a lot of people who are surrounded by addiction, and I think we you know culturally are very indoctrinated into a solution oriented mindset. It's like especially when you're around addiction, there's I think there's a kind of causal uh, nature, or like a side effect that happens when you're around it that you're you're constantly looking for a solution to help that person get out of it or wanting to move to that other extreme of like well fuck them you know like i'll just i'll just leave them and they'll they'll deal with it on their own and 
you know, and just sort of shutting off the heart entirely. And so I appreciate you sharing your, your journey in that. And I think that, you know, just advocating a little bit for utilizing other programs, right? Like Al-Anon, you know, that, that are out there to support children of alcoholics or family members of alcoholics. And because one of the funny things, again, that I've, I've found is that people that are around addicts are very quick to say that person should go and get help, but then don't want to go and get any kind of communal support for themselves in navigating that relationship with the person that has the addiction. Yeah. And so there, there can be a tremendous benefit in that. I'm hoping that we can just close down by talking about the communal void and the communal aspect surrounding addiction, because that does seem to be uh, quite prominent, that, that people that have addictions will often move towards some form of isolation and having the, the, the addiction of their, of their choice be this thing that happens in secret or happens with other people that they're sharing that experience with. So yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that we can just sort of close on the communal aspect that seems to be so prominent, at least from what I hear you saying, not only historically, but personally and, and from a research perspective. Yeah, I'm so glad you asked about that because I was thinking about this earlier that um, addiction is often associated with this sort of heroic and romantic notion almost. Mm. Going back to the you know, 1820s, 1830s, when writers would take massive doses of opium and call it like a, a revolution against a sick society. Or I think about like Jack London and Ernest Hemingway and all these early 20, 20th century guys who took it up as a badge of masculinity. And Jack London in particular called it the white logic. It, was the, it wasn't about like race. It was the, the white logic was like the blinding white realization of being in touch with the existential reality of life in all of its uh stark and fatalistic like splendor it was this sort of elevated notion of pessimism mm. and then i write a lot about burroughs too william burroughs who like totally fetishized used that word earlier i totally <laughs> you know it's a good one to use in this case fetishized the sort of suffering and almost like counterculturally reclaimed the notion of uh junkie and named his first book junkie because he wanted to have a sense of being a community in an outsider. And that's what a lot of the beats were about, you know, except for Allen Ginsberg, a lot of them wound up in, with really bad ends along those ways. So anyway, you know, I think that like community is not an unvarnished good that, you know, we have to be careful about the communities that we associate with and be clear on what the values are, what we're working toward, what the purpose of that community is. But I really see a lot of hope in that today. It's really fascinating, even over the course of writing this book. Because in many ways, I wrote it over 10 years. I wrote it starting when I was in early recovery. And it was a long process of going out there and doing research and talking to people who were trying to understand this, this phenomenon. And um, even within that time, there's been tremendous advances in people coming forward to share their stories, share their mental health struggles, and, and recognize that what I was talking about before, this tremendous variety of ways that people recover and how it doesn't need to be a cause for ideological divisions or that we don't have to like pronounce judgment that like one person's way is the right way and everybody else should fall into line. But, you know, some people can experiment with sobriety. Some people can be like partially abstinent with some substances, but not with others. I'm not sure that's true for people who have like a true addiction, like a life-threatening addiction, but not everybody with a substance problem has an addiction. Mm. And um, 
we've been stuck in that sort of like one size fits all mentality. So I, you know, this is just where my, my mind is going that I think there's a lot of hope in the notion of, um, you know, recognizing that these deeper problems of human suffering and self-control are universal problems. And there are a lot of ways that we can work together uh, to understand them together. And um, we can respect a sort of variety and heterogeneity within those experiences. Yeah, well said. Well said. I mean, there's a lot there that I feel like we could continue to <laughs> go in on, um, but I think we'll have to pause there for today. Well, I appreciate you and and the work that you're doing and um, just your capacity and willingness to share a little bit about your experience as well. For people that are wanting to find the book, learn more about you, uh, where are the best places for them to go? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the best place is my website. It's carlericfisher.com. And I, as long as we're listening to a podcast, I'll, I'll say that I have a podcast myself. It's called Flourishing After Addiction, where I do interviews with people exploring addiction and recovery from all sorts of different angles, like science, but also uh, philosophy and spirituality, a little bit like what we've been talking about today. So if you're into this sort of stuff, uh, I think you'd like it. Check it out. Very cool. Very cool. Well, thank you so much again for joining me. For everyone that's out there listening to this, don't forget to share this episode with somebody that you know will enjoy this conversation specifically. And don't forget to leave us a rating and review on whatever platform you're listening to us on. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off.